you are about to see the first public exhibition of an entirely new form of entertainment. You are about to see... You are about to see... That belongs in a museum! You are about to see the first public exhibition of an entirely new form of entertainment. That belongs in a museum! Hello and welcome to another exciting episode of Treasury Cast, the show that celebrates the greatest comics format of all time, the Treasury Edition. Proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm your host, Rob Kelly. And joining us this month to talk about Paul Dini and Alex Ross's Batman War on Crime is 13thDimension.com's editor-in-chief, Dan Greenfield. Hi, Dan. Welcome back. Hello, Rob. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for being here. Well, I appreciate it. You know, getting, you know, when... Uh, getting me getting a chance to talk about Batman is not exactly hard labor. Uh, yeah, so, I mean, I figured it was right over yeah. the plate for you. You know, <laughs> yeah, it really was. I was like, "Hey, you want to do uh, war on?" Yes, I do. Yes, I do, Rob. And uh, I'm glad because it actually had been some time since I've read it. So, oh, okay. Um, it was good to get uh, reacquainted with it, and uh, there you have it. Yeah, yeah. I book. mean, I absolutely love these books. This this run that Deanie and Ross did together, and I was shocked to learn by my own, you know, I, like the last one of these I did was like episode seven of Treasury Cast. And this is episode 78. We, uh, Dr. Ange and I covered Shazam Power of Hope. I have no idea why I let so much time go by before doing another well, one of these. Especially uh, since you had Alex. Yeah, you had Alex Ross on. I'm, I mean, we did. Yeah, <laughs> when I had Alex on, we did talk yeah. about these books, but like we didn't cover right. them one at a time. No, but no, I no. really like these books. And I just I, yeah. I, I was just like, wait a minute. Have I really not done Batman War on Crime yet? How is that possible? Yeah. So I'm glad we're finally getting a chance to do this. So uh, I want to find out your opinion about these books in general. But but first, I'm just going to get to the plot of this one so we can kind of okay. get it out of the way. And then we sure. can yeah, we can talk about the books in general and then this this one specifically. So as I said, it's Batman War on Crime. It was on sale November 17th, 1999 by, of course, Paul Dini and Alex Ross. We open in the early morning with Batman perched atop a tomb in the graveyard where his parents are buried. We follow the Dark Knight detective as he goes through his paces, stopping all sorts of crime in Gotham City, muggings, robberies, interacting with some of his rogues gallery. We do the same thing in the day, seeing how he operates with the upper echelons of Gotham society as billionaire playboy Bruce Wayne. At a meeting, fellow one percenter Randall Winters presents Bruce and other members of Gotham's business class a proposition, which involves renovating a large section of Gotham's downtown called Bayside. Wayne is noncommittal. That night, Batman apprehends an armed crook who has just robbed a convenience store. While he easily stops the man from getting away, he was too late to stop the murder of two of the shop's owners, leaving behind their young son. The look on the boy's face stops even Batman for a moment. Seeing himself in the boy named Marcus, Batman watches him go through the same impersonal system he did when his parents were murdered. Bruce Wayne has another meeting with Winters, who assures him that Bayside can be cleaned out of the undesirables, which will help ensure he and his partners can swoop in and make a killing. Winters also confides in his fellow rich guy that he has been paying some cops to rough up locals in the hopes of getting them to move away. As Batman, 
Bruce decides to take a special interest in Bayside, spending an unusual amount of time there stopping muggings, burglaries, and the like. The word gets out. Batman is watching. Unfortunately caught up in this web of criminality is Marcus. During a robbery, Batman lets Marcus get away. But when they run into, run into each other again at a drug lab, it escalates to where Marcus pulls a gun on Batman. Instead of simply disarming the young boy, Batman tries a different tack, honesty. He tells Marcus he knows what it's like to lose one's parents and gives him the opportunity to choose a different path. Marcus does, going so far as to tearfully embracing the Dark Knight. Batman acknowledges that while Marcus's time in the Gotham juvenile justice system will be hard, he'll be watching out for him. As Bruce Wayne, he tells Winters the bad news. He's not interested in his plan for Bayside, preferring to use Wayne Enterprises' vast fortune to invest in the people already there by opening up a factory. Winters doesn't have time to complain, though, because moments later, Commissioner Gordon and the GCPD show up, responding to a tip they got about Winters paying off cops. Over the course of the night and the following morning, Batman contemplates Marcus's future and thinks about his hopes to rid of Gotham City of crime, a goal he knows he will never reach. All right. So, Dan, like, so before we get into the specifics of Batman, War and Crime, what, what are your feelings about this this run of books that Dini and Ross did one per year over the course of, I think, like five or six years? Well, they're beautiful. I mean, they're 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 wonderful stories. They're very interesting um, style because there are no word balloons. It doesn't follow like a typical comic book. There is dialogue and there's an internal dialogue. So it's sort of, you know, it's got this this it's it's got a narrative and you know it, it you know it's all put together that way. But it's not your typical comic book. It's not broken down really. I mean, there are frames. There are ways that things you know, look like a typical comic book, but the way, but the way it's presented, it's really just a series of paintings that tell a story and, you know, whether it was Dini's story or whether, because the way it's, it's built is that the story is by both of them and that it was the text by Dini and the art by Alex Roth. So I really don't know who was responsible for what in, in terms of the actual story itself. But what I like about it is, and I like about these books in general, is that they are brief windows into what if these people actually existed, mm-hmm. which is always, you know, that, 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 that's a hoary chestnut for, for a comic book writer, you know, to let's see if we can make it like they really happened. And the, the beauty of, of Ross's art is that you buy it because of the way, because the level of detail, because the beauty of the paintings, because they look like photographs. And nobody, Batman doesn't look silly in his outfit in that world. Superman doesn't look silly in his outfit. They, it's, there's, there's some of that Richard Donner verisimilitude in, in the way the stories are told. They're told, with, they're told in a straightforward fashion. The characters look like the characters you're familiar with, but presented in a way that is gorgeous dynamic uh and the stories themselves while on the short side still have there's meat to them there's there's a you know you you are taken in by the stories and the messages behind the stories i remember when these came out you know i bought them uh as they came out and after the first one which was superman uh peace on earth which we have yet to, to cover i remember there was some criticism within i don't even remember where i saw these things because this is like 1998 so it's like you know the internet was around but it's kind of pre you know kind of like nascent early internet but i remember the the knock being like okay we're kind of veering into like superman quest for peace territory and that superman 
is attacking a problem that we know he can't solve. And that leaves you always with a slight, you know, feeling of like, well, what was the point of this? You know, he can stop loose or he can stop Brainiac, but he can't bring peace on earth. We know he's not going to. So, you know, we know Superman isn't going to rid the world of nuclear weapons. So why are we on this journey now? I didn't, that didn't bother me with peace on earth because I felt that Dini and Ross found a way kind of around that a little to leave and, and leave it satisfying, but we'll leave that discussion for whenever episode we get to that book. This one though gets around that simply because it's more specific to Batman war on crime. Well, every Batman comic is about his war on crime and we know that he's never going to solve it. That I means it's built into the equation. Now, of course, regular Batman comics get to deal with his rogues gallery. I mean, for the most part, that's a kind of all they're about at this point. I, I haven't read a yeah. new Batman comic in a long time, but the, Nor I, I. yeah, I mean, but you know, and that's, and we'll talk about his rogues gallery as they appear in this book, which is pretty sparingly and cleverly, I think in some ways, Yeah, but I thought like, I understand again, the knock on these at the time was, well, they're not comic books but they're not picture books. They're too sophisticated for picture books, but they're not, they don't read like comic books. And while I agree that is true, I'm like, well, they're their own thing. They are, you know, these six volumes they did, Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, Shazam, Secret Origins, and Justice League, no Aquaman. Um, (laughs) But they're, they're just, they're their own thing. And of course it was Alex Ross who has been on this show twice you know, was able to get these done as treasuries because he had enough commercial heft to get it done. You know, right. as he said on the show that he, the first episode he was on episode 50, he wanted these to, to have like a, an impact and remind people this is not just a, not just doing air quotes here, a comic book. It's its own thing. And by the nature of its size and the fact that it is all painted, yeah, it does become its own thing and it kind of justifies the price point and stuff like that. But inherently of all of them, this one seems like the most straight ahead because it's like Batman war on crime. Well, that's what he does. That's, a, you know, it's fine. We know. And this features, and we'll get to it as we kind of go through the story beats. This features one of my favorite Batman moments I have ever read in the 10,000 Batman comics I've read. Really? Yeah. This features one of my favorite moments and I have not read any of these in a well, I read Justice League a little while ago because I just reread that one a lot, but I haven't read any of these in a little while. And rereading it again, it got to me all over again of how much I think it works. So yeah, this one, I really love this one. I'm not going to rank them all, but I really love this one. I think it is incredibly effective. Ross's work is top notch. And as you said, we don't know the breakdown of who did what exactly, Danny and Ross, but I think by having Batman follow this kid's journey, Marcus, and seeing trying to keep him from going down a dark path, I think that's a great, it's an audience surrogate. It's, okay, Batman is somebody to kind of like look out for. He's not just busting heads. He's trying to make Gotham City a little better and also doing it as Bruce Wayne, something that, you know, on on like social media now, we're all, there's all full of criticisms like, oh, Bruce Wayne could be doing a lot better, a lot doing a lot more help. Gotham City with his vast wealth as opposed to cracking skulls. And I love that as much of the book as him as Batman, it's just as much him as Bruce Wayne trying to invest in Gotham City as a a, a rich guy trying to help the city as opposed yeah. to just stopping crime. 
Yeah, I see for me, first off, to go back to what you were saying earlier about the criticism about, oh, well, it's not a comic, it's not a book. It's amazing how rigid comic book fans can be. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, which is not amazing because we've all lived with it with our for our entire lives. But it shouldn't matter. The format is still the format, and the 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 the, the, the style of storytelling they are. It may be not exact, but it's close enough. I mean, when I think of looking at this, I'm reading a comic book, a beautiful, oversized, painted comic book, but a comic book nonetheless. Um, you want to call it a graphic novel? That's fine too. But I, in in what you were saying, particularly the split between Batman and Bruce. And also, this also relates to what you were saying before about uh, peace on Earth and that there was a criticism that, you know, Superman taking on a problem that he can't solve. See, I, I like that. I like that because I, I like to see a hero endure despite the fact that they cannot solve everything. And that's also the message in War on Crime, where he's trying, Batman is trying his best. And I, I think of you know, when I was reading it, because it had been a long time since I read it, and I read it last night in preparation for this, and I thought to myself, as I was reading it, I felt echoes of the movie The Batman, you know, the one from 2022, mm-hmm. and which thematically, you know, that, that movie, they're, they're, everybody talks about uh, Batman, Ego, Long Halloween, and Year One are being the, the main... Um, the main influences and in DC even did a box set with those books in it. And I don't know if anybody's mentioned war on crime. I did a bit, a little bit of research, but I couldn't find anything with Matt Reeves. Maybe he said it. I just couldn't find it. But the, the, that dichotomy of what can I do if beating up people isn't enough. Mm-hmm. And that is what the crux of that movie is. When you boil it down, here's a guy, he's been doing it for a while. He knows how to do it but it's still not working. What am I doing wrong? And the the character's arc for the movie is him learning what he needs to do if he really wants to, to make a difference. Now, that said, even he's got to know, because at the end of the movie, spoiler alert for anyone who hasn't seen it, Selena, Selena tells him, you're never going to win this. And he's like, I have to try. And that's that's the same message I get here is that he, you know, the, the the stuff he does by night has limited impact. He learns or figures out that he hasn't really been using his daylight hours as well as he could be. And he says he, he uses, you know, because he, he talks about it in his internal monologue. He's like, you know, generally I use these opportunities to pump for information about whatever crime I'm working on or whatever, but it's never thinking outside the box. Now, it's interesting for this story, but I, I can't help it being the, the unlicensed Batmanologist that I am, <laughs> that I'll take you all the way back to 1969 and Batman number 217, which is the issue where Robin left for college. Mm. And it was written by Frank uh, Robin's uh, art by Irv Novick. And what it's about is that Batman not only – Robin leaves for college, Batman leaves the Batcave. Moves into the middle of the city, later identified as, you know, Wayne Tower, Wayne Foundation building or whatever. Um, but what he also does is that he creates a program called Victims Incorporated Program, which is, which is called VIP. VIP. And the whole, the whole, yeah, it's a really kind of lousy acronym, but you know, what are you going to do? The point is that he decides that he is going to spend his days basically aiding you know, criminal victims and helping them 
with his fortune as a philanthropist directly. Like it's actually going to be his day job. It lasted like three issues and then they just forgot about it. Oh, <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. Because there was some pushback, not, not, you know, it was most, I mean, this, this is a, this is a debate that one of the letters comes. Should Bruce Wayne be a playboy? Should Bruce Wayne be a philanthropist? Should be, he be a businessman. And I always prefer the Bruce Wayne, the Batman stories where Bruce Wayne has a role. I don't like all Batman all the time. Bruce Wayne has to exist and has to serve a function. And so he does that extremely well in this story. And it, to me, it, it echoes that, you know, that earliest Bronze Age concept of, well, wouldn't Batman, wouldn't Bruce Wayne use his fortune that way? Shouldn't he use his fortune that way? And they've always played with the idea that he's a philanthropist and occasionally he'll get into, you know, they, they will address that in the comics. But here they really use it as a, it's almost like a game of chess where he realizes that he he can get his point across. Look, whatever he's going to do to beat people up, he's driven to do that. And he kind of acknowledges that. But he knows he can do more, and he discovers that the way to do it is invest in the people he's trying to protect and not just, you know, kick ass. He also uses it as an opportunity to screw the guy who was trying to, you know, come up with, uh, which is great, you know, is, is brilliant that this is this, this other one percenter, as you say, you know, who's got no morals whatsoever and, and, and Bruce sticks it to him in the end. So what I liked about it is, and, and it, is that it does play with the idea that I think a, the best Batman is the Batman that has a Bruce Wayne attached to him. And not the other way around where they just make Batman Batman and he's only fighting, you know, crazy villains and he doesn't get into like the real story. Some of the best stories of the Bronze Age, for example, are stories that are just moments or, you know, like I think of uh, um, uh, there is no hope in Crime Alley, mm. you know, who's, the DNA of which is all over this, you know, the 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 notion of not just a war on crime, but also trying to protect and save his city on, you know, on a bigger scale. So I, I, I appreciated that all about the storytelling. And the reason that I think that it works is also because of the imagery, because you really do yeah. feel like you're watching, you're, you're, you're watching storyboards or feels like a film. So you really do feel like you're watching. If Batman existed, this is a completely plausible way that he could exist. And frankly, someone could expand this and make a movie out of it. And they kind of sort of have in different movies, different pieces of this show up. But I kept thinking of of the Batman, uh, the, the 2022 movie as I was watching it. Or as I, listen to me, I'm saying I'm watching the book because it, it feels that way. But as I was reading it, those themes were very similar. Like what if if Batman recognizes that his that his powers are limited, I don't mean superpowers, but his ability to make change are limited, then he's got to find other ways to help. And even though he acknowledges at the end of, of the book that I can't do, I, I'm not going to be able to win this war, but at least I can do what I can do. And that to me is heroism in real life, not heroism in comic book life or heroism that we see. That's why you don't want to have every story done this way, but you can see stories that are done this way and appreciate them for what they are, because it does give you a sense of that Batman is still a hero no matter what. Yeah, the crazies are all over the city. Yeah, there's street crime. Yeah, there's corruption. All of the things that exist in the world of Gotham exist here. But Batman's Batman's um, commitment to doing whatever he can do is really front and center here as you're reading the story. 
Yeah, when you hear the title War on Crime, we all think, okay, that's Batman beating up the Riddler, beating up yeah. Joker. And it's like, yeah, but those are symptoms of the problem, not the problem. And so, yeah. like you say, I love that this story is just as much Bruce Wayne's as it yeah. is Batman's and that he is working the same case just both ends against the mid, you know, against the middle. He's like, yeah. okay, you know, this guy, Randall Winters, uh, he wants to clean up Bayside. Well, it's like, well, I want to clean up Bayside too, but for the right reasons, not because I want to make right. a killing and gentrify it. So, okay, right. as Batman, I'm going to spend all my time there stopping every crime. But at the same time as Bruce Wayne, I'm going to work to reinvest whatever. And, you know, cinematically, yes, it's Alex Ross. I mean, that opening splash page, the two pages of the city, and yeah. we're and we just see Batman as this tiny figure fluttering in the back. I mean, it's reminiscent of the Superman versus Muhammad Ali double splash page in New York yeah. with Clark and Lois and Jimmy walking the streets. So it's just if it's a movie, you can imagine this pan across the screen with the with the you know the the, the theme you know playing well, in the background of of Batman doing this. And well, well go ahead. no, do go ahead. No, I was going to say, um, I, I was going to tell you a secret, but you got to promise not to tell anybody. Okay, this isn't being recorded, to, so that's fine. Yeah, and you're, right, and your listeners can't tell anybody either. I, I, but uh, because I work in midtown Manhattan, and frequently, depending on the time of the year, by the time I'm heading home, the sky looks very much like you see it in that splash. i got to tell you, in my little imagination, I think, <laughs> wouldn't it be cool if I looked up and I just saw that little bat guy fluttering from roof to roof as I was on my way to the train home. Because that's what that scene is. He's a part of the, you know, he's above everybody. So they're, you know, he's, he's not a group. And I don't mean above them all in the, in the, uh, in the obnoxious sense. He's above them literally that he's flying above, looking from below. They're just living their lives. But if anybody looks up and I think there's like one person it shows who's kind of glancing up and seems to recognize that something's <laughs> going on. That to me is what New York would be like. Oh, there's that Batman guy, you know, and he'd just be a part of the furniture in that, in that regard. And I really like that. And I also like the sense of place that the book gives you, not just because of that, but just in general, the, the only other artist I've ever seen give um, Gotham the personality that, that, that I appreciate is Marshall Rogers. And I mean, some people prefer like the neo-Gothic kind of Tim Burton verse. I have always preferred a Gotham City that basically is a stand-in for New York City. Mm -hmm. And, and you know, I don't know if he used Chicago buildings or New York buildings or, or whatever for reference, um, but it feels like a real place. And so that adds an element of, of depth to the storytelling as well. So again, you do want these stories to take place in a real world. What I like to see you know, a 40 some odd page story of Batman and the Joker done in this format. Sure. I would, but I like the, I like the feeling of this one. I also like the fact that, and this is something that, that'll blow people's minds, but it's a political story. Mm -hmm. you know, people are saying, don't put politics in my comics, politics and comics don't mix. Well, this is a very political story. And, and if you can't see that, if you can't, if you can't grasp that, then I, I don't know what you're doing. Yeah, oh, very much. So. There's a there's a specific point uh, scene in the book that we'll get to that I think addresses that directly. And then you mentioned the Joker earlier. Something else I like about this one, and this is the most explicit of the four of the Superman, Batman, Shazam, uh, Wonder Woman ones of in terms of putting it like this comic exists in presumably kind of the same Batman universe that we're familiar with. Yeah. In that we see in like there's this the the, the um. 
the second splash page where it's kind of a montage of events, we see that he is stopping the Riddler in the middle of plotting a, a crime. We see there's yeah. a guy at like a drawing board and we could yep. see there's like a little figurine that it's clearly the Riddler and he looks like Edward Nigma. And then there's another montage of the next page after that where somebody is got a a hostage and they've they're turning away from the camera but it's clearly the joker and so i like that okay this exists in the universe we're familiar with where there are the rogues gallery but that's not this story but i like that we're there you know it's the same universe we're familiar with but it's just we're that that's not what this is about right now right well in in fact it's it's of uh, as far as batman stories go it is truly solitary there's no interplay really with alfred there's no mention of Robin. In fact, yep. if this were your typical comic book, Marcus would be the new Robin at the end of the story. <laughs> you know? But I mean, what what makes it refreshing is that Batman just at the end lends him his lends him his compassion, lends him his. You know, I, I imagine that you know when Batman and I've always imagined that Batman and Bruce Wayne talked with two different voices. But here, I imagine that in the scene. When he's talking to Marcus, he's using his Bruce Wayne voice. Mm-hmm. His mm-hmm. less threatening. He's probably mm-hmm. just more. I can. I can. I, I just infer that. But yeah, it's it it straddles that line of of uh, taking place in the real world and yet taking place in the world of Batman. So you have a bodega that looks very much like a bodega. And then the next thing you know, you see the Joker doing his thing, and then you see also I like the, the fact that they show a dirty cop pay off. Mm-hmm. And and all the other things that go down in in Gotham City, it's all present, but this is a more personal story, and 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 it works because it decides to nod to these Batman classic elements, but decides it wants to do something else entirely, and still tells a very very effective, very clearly a Batman story. Yeah, I, I love the scene early on where he has the business meeting with Randall Winters and these other guys. First of all, I love that in the background, Randall Winters has a painting of himself. Yes. Look, looking kind of like look off to the heavens, like, you know, very, yeah, very yeah. like, okay, I'm a great man. And so I have a painting yeah. of myself. Uh, and then there's this great little interior monologue where we see Winters putting his arm around Bruce. And there's this line about where he says, you know, Winters assumes a friendship with me that isn't really there but because we're both basically super duper rich guys he's assuming a familiarity that we don't really have and i love that i love that bruce recognizes that because of course he's seen a million of these guys but there's a kind of like oh yeah you know we're we're all the same you know bruce and he's like no not really but bruce of course is a great actor and he can fake this but i love that detail i love that he's just like yeah this this little worm thinks we're alike when we're not at all. Yeah. I also like the way he's drawn. I mean, he's just such a, he's such <laughs> an asshole. Yeah. Because <laughs> everything about him is like, oh, God. Because we've all known guys like that. Uh-huh. Like, oh. mm-hmm. Too clever, too clever by half and, uh, you know, their own best press agents. But, um, but yeah, I like that aspect of it. I like the fact that he's always alert. You know, whether he's, you know, and there, it goes back to that old debate. Is he really Bruce Wayne? Or is he really Batman? Which is the mask and all of that? And here, and this is what I prefer, is that it's a balance of both. Yeah. Is that, yes, Batman is always at work, but he does need Bruce Wayne for many reasons, not the least of which is to do what he's doing here. Um, The book doesn't really get into it, but I think that for me, just as an aside, 
Batman stories need Bruce Wayne for their humanity. And it also needs it also needs them for that that transformative nature of the stories is that he is somebody who decides to do something. If he's always Batman, I find that dull. You know, stories that go on and on and on, six issues, and there's no Bruce Wayne, and it's just Batman not talking and being grumpy and you know, mm. pounding people and having everybody around him complain about him just doesn't interest me. Mm. I'd much rather have a Batman who is engaged at all times and in a way that is humane and that he's actually able to – he's not so emotionally stunted that he can't articulate his feelings to this young boy who's had his life shattered. I've always figured that the the real – Batman, such as it is, is whatever version he is of himself when he's with Alfred. That's the real guy. He's not Batman, and he's not—he's not the fake Bruce Wayne. Whatever version of him is that—that because that, that's he's the real guy when he's sitting with Alfred. That's the real guy. I, I can see that. I think it really depends on which era you're talking about. That's but true. Yeah, yes. if, we're, if, if we're if we're talking about modern Batman, I think that's fair. Um, but but Alfred is a you, you would think that Alfred would have had a bigger role, but Alfred in this has the traditional role of pretty much just you know holding a tray for Batman yeah. for when he needs it. But otherwise, everything that's going on in Batman is going on in his own head. There's no there's no seeking of advice or no Alfred pointing out you know something that Bruce has missed because he's too focused on something else. And I do like that too. It's it's a very the story has. It gives Bruce Wayne a depth that a lot of writers, I think, take for granted. And I and I think back, you know, you, you talk about the which is the real Batman, the one in the Batcave talking to Alfred. I think is a is is as good as you're going to get. But I think of if I go back to say the start of the Bronze Age, for me, the Batman that works the best was the one that was written by Len Wein over the long haul. This mm-hmm. was a Batman who did have a life at Wayne Enterprises and it introduced Lucius Fox and it had characters. And I know some people um, criticized Len Wein said he thought he was writing Spider-Man when he was writing Batman because mm-hmm. it is. It's very much about an extended group of characters, but that has always appealed to me. So the fact that this book is, you know, probably 40% Bruce Wayne, that's it's right on the money for this kind of story. Yeah. Um, so we see Batman, uh, stop this, uh, guy from who has just robbed a convenience store. He knocks the gray, he throws like a batarang at him and knocks him over. It's the, hardly any effort on him at all. There's this shot of Batman entering the convenience store. And, you know, again, it's this, this, the power of Ross's work is that, you know, he can put these characters in real life situations where, I don't know, some other artist that might look a little ridiculous. Batman, like Batman yeah. entering the convenience store, which is, of course, overlit, you know, with neon. And he's standing there in the door and there's like, you know, racks of gum and all sorts of stuff. It could look a little silly, but Ross is able to put it across. And then there's that panel where he leans over the the counter and sees Marcus staring back at him. And he looks genuinely like, oh, you know, yeah. shocked. And, uh, you know, he's dismayed. Uh, upset all at the same time. And it's, you know, it's a great little moment. And then we follow up with him watching Marcus, uh, as I mentioned in the synopsis, starting to go through the same system that he went through as Bruce Wayne. And he's, he's going to follow this kid. And then he gets into kind of a, a longer sort of monologue about crime itself, about the, the, how it ruins anyone that it touches. We even get a little cameo from Two Face. Uh, with his, although with his scarred side away from the camera, but you could kind of tell that it's Two Face. But this idea Did that you, no, no, wait, no, hold on. You thought that was Two Face? I wondered if it wasn't the original Clayface. Oh, interesting. I okay, I always, I, I always it was thought, Two-Face. yeah, 
Yeah, it, it it could very well be. I don't I don't know, but I saw the I saw the look. I said, "Is that Clayface?" But you know, <laughs> nevertheless, either way, it doesn't matter. It's a face. So yeah, it's it's that. one of his rogues gallery in Arkham Asylum. Right, it's one of his sitting yeah, exactly. there. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so then we get to see Batman undercover and we go, he goes into Bayside and we see that he's sort of following up undercover. And then there's this great moment. And you, this is where we're going when you mentioned the, the politics of it, where he is, he's, he's undercover and he's kind of got like a trucker's hat on and he's got his head down and, and he, no one can really, obviously no one's expecting to see Bruce Wayne there anyway, but he's sitting there at this diner and he is talking about the waitress that he is getting the, his food from. And he mentions that this woman is an ex con and that she's been, she's gotten out and now, you know, she's trying to go straight, but he mentions the, the routine and crushing drudgery of her daily existence is probably going to send her right back into the arms of crime. And I always thought that was an extraordinarily trenchant piece of writing on either Deanie or Ross's or both of their part of like, it's not just a matter of getting someone who's gone to jail and getting them released. Well, they're everything's fine now. No, we, you know, there are people who are going to fall victim to this because life itself, just regular life is hard enough. You know, just like to me, regular life is hard enough. And I love that, that face breaker Batman, which is, I feel like what we've come to, you know see in the last couple of years decades even i like that this is a more sympathetic batman i like that as he's like look some of these people don't want to go back to crime but they don't know what else to do when the rest of their life seems so impossible and just that little moment that he is bothering to follow up with this woman and and try and see where she might go wrong again i i I love that as an aspect to, to to batman well, he also tips her a hundred bucks, mm-hmm. which which I thought was an interesting approach too, because you could argue that you know this is a Bruce Wayne move, and that you know people like Bruce Wayne think that money can solve everything, which is mm-hmm. also that that is an issue, and I think it's a fair dis- a fair discussion point. But also, you, you think to yourself as he does it. I mean, he has to know that a hundred dollars isn't going to save him from going to jail back to jail or back to a life of crime. But it's, it's similar to the, it's in a way it's foreshadowing whether it was meant to be or not. The way the story culminates with this understanding that I can only do so much, but I will do what I can. So he helps her out in this moment for however long it helps. It might keep her away from a life of crime for another few days at least. And that's something. And I, and you know, I might be, I might be inferring too much, but that's that's the sense I get from him giving her the hundred because he's, he's he knows she's going back and there's nothing that he can he almost is it's like there's nothing I could do about it but I might as well at least do this. But the other thing you know we were we were talking about her and we talk about Marcus and the 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 story doesn't get into this this much but again this is why I want to go back to the reference of um, the Batman the movie is the economic subtext of that story and the racial subtext of that story too, which a lot of people I don't think necessarily caught the first time. I, I didn't. I, I, I watched it on repeated viewings and really found that there's a lot of stuff going on in that movie that I did not really recognize the first time around. And it really is the whole core of, and I don't want to go off on a tangent about that movie, uh, which I like very much. Um, it's the Batman is able to do what he does because he's also independently wealthy 
has has limitless resources or seemingly limitless resources and and so you know he's as he's as wounded by crime as any other child but how he chooses to go about it he's able to pull it off because of his resources the same is not the case for marcus and the same is not the case for the waitress and so there is an acknowledgement here um that the that Batman can do what he does because he's the one part of the one percent, and that there has to be another way. You know, the message here being there's got to be another way of doing this. You know, uh, uh, or, or fixing or helping society. And the message is, of course, you know, there's not a white knight like Bruce Wayne. You know, saying I'm going to uh, reinvest in this in these factories and reinvest in these communities. But the message is, is that's what we as a society should be doing. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, like I said, I, I, it's, it's. It's not that I didn't already think this as the character, but it's nice to know that this, at least this version of Batman, doesn't regard crime solving as just beating people up, throwing them in jail, and then my work here is done. Yeah. No, you know, and and I love that he spends even part of his time, uh, despite the fact that he's got like what seventeen books to fill from DC Comics every month, yeah. that he even <laughs> has time to do this. You know, he has time to follow up on some random woman that he arrested a while back. Uh, yeah. He's got time to be in the Justice League and all the other whatever other things he's doing in the DC books. Um, so then he breaks up another uh, another crime. And actually, wait, let me before oh, yeah. wait before we do that. Let me go back to the the, the scene before he's in the he's in the diner, mm-hmm. which shows him on the street in disguise. Is a total homage to Dark Knight, where he's dressed as an old. Oh, woman the homeless person. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah, I just had to let that. I had to mention that just because when thief, I saw that. Thief, Seven Eleven sells this. Seven Eleven, Seven Eleven, Seven Eleven, favorite thing. And the guy sticks the gun right. up the nostril, yeah. and then it turns out exactly. that he's Batman. Yeah, yeah, that yeah. that I should have mentioned that. Yeah, that is that has got to be an homage I, to the Dark Knight. I should go. Yeah, I should go back and see if he's wearing the same shawl. Because I'm looking at it, I'm like, it is, it's, it's Bruce Wayne as the old lady. I love that. In Dark Knight, he's got a mask on though. He's got like an actual mask because the guy, and then he, that's the bit where the, he beats up the, 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 the the guy attempting to rob the place. And then the owner sticks his gun in the guy's, in the, in the, in the robber's face. And he's like, let's settle up. And then as he's leaving, Batman says, you pull that trigger and I'll be back for you. Uh, right. which I remember that moment very distinctly. Yeah. It's like, hey, wait a minute. You know, that's not what this is about. But yes, I, <laughs> 7-Eleven, still this for 7-Eleven. <laughs> so, um, he stops this robbery and he throws like a gas bomb. And of course it disperses all the crooks. And then he sees that Marcus is unfortunately part of this gang and he chooses to let Marcus get away. Uh, he watches Marcus run away and he's like, okay, I'm going to give this kid kind of another break. For the moment. And then we see him sort of retiring for the night. And there's another montage where we see Alfred. Finally, we see Alfred there. And we pulls the shirt off and we have the scarred back thing, which, of course, was, I believe, the work of Alan Brenner and Joe Staten from Brave and the Bold in 1997. I believe that's the yeah. first time anybody had ever it, it done is. that. It's, it's, uh, Alex Ross has given them credit for that. Yeah. Like the, there was a, yeah, not, it's, because the thing about a lot of the images in the book, and, and maybe you know, but I don't, and, and, and some of the images are um, I've seen as separate prints or parts of them, like the scene mm-hmm. of him mm-hmm. just with his scarred back. I've seen that as its own print. So I'm not yep. sure exactly how he structured some of this or, you know, how, whether he decided to go back and make a full print of that or whatever. But yeah, it's from that 
that scene um, that was drawn by Joe Staten and written by Alan Brenner, where it's uh, Catwoman. We don't actually yeah. see the scars, but we no. see her reaction to yeah. them, which, of course, again, is something that's become uh, sort of a trope now. Yeah, that uh, yeah. yeah, you see it. You see it in the, the Batman. You saw it in the Dark Knight. You see, you know, that's which I, I always think it's a nice touch. Yeah, thank you, Alan Brenner. Uh, so yes. uh, the next morning, see Alfred waking Bruce Wayne up, and then Bruce has another meeting with Randall Winters. There's another marvelous scene where where Winters casually talks about that he could pay off some cops to help run the undesirables out of the neighborhood, and there's this great look of Bruce Wayne as he's staring at Randall Winters and Winters is clueless. He has no idea yeah, what of course, of course Wayne is thinking, but we know. And he has the great moment where he says, I res- I resist my urge to pummel the man. Just get up and beat the living shit out of this yeah. guy because he's so, and you know, again, I, we don't want to go down this road too far because it's treasury cast, but I think we've all faced this where someone in your life has said something to you highly offensive and because of maybe your similar sex or race or economic background they think you're you're okay with that and 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 it's hard there have been moments where it i've had that in my life and there's more i've had that with people that i've worked with and i have to calculate in this moment what do i i have to work with this person after this do i they're my in one case it was my boss you know, and it's like, do I keep my mouth shut and say, no? I mean, I'm certainly not going to endorse what they're saying, right. but if I say nothing, am I giving them the impression that is, this is okay, what you just said, yeah. or am I, so that, it, that's a genuine moment of like, okay, I, and now, you know, as Bruce Wayne, he lets it go, right. but at the same time, we've, I, we've all had that thing where you're like, this is unacceptable, what you just said to me. And I hate the fact that you're assuming I'm in on it because we are similar in some way. Yeah, and I think that also helps to drive Batman's or Bruce Wayne's decision making. Yeah. Is that he's also looking at it. He's like, I could I could be that guy. We are from the same social circles. Yeah. I, that that could be me. But I don't want to be that guy. I'm, I, and, and if this other aspect of what I'm doing isn't effective enough then maybe I should take what this guy is doing and turn it on its head. So his conversations with this guy, I think, inform his decision-making because he finds this guy so, so odious yeah. <laughs> that he that he's just like, I got to stop this. This is wrong. You know, and it all, it all kind of comes together. I don't think he has a single epiphany as the story goes on. I think it's more subtle than that. Absolutely. Um, so then he's back as Batman and he's doing research. We get this shot of him. In a in a in a way that uh, you know again I haven't read a new Batman comic in a long time so maybe they do this all the time now but it's it, it, at least at the time of this book still on the relatively rare side of Batman in his costume but without the utility belt and without the cowl and mm-hmm. then without the gloves and you know again it, but uh, under the hand of another artist that could look goofy because yeah. he really does look like he's just wearing you know, underoos at this point, you know, he doesn't have the benefit of the cool cowl and the cape, but nevertheless, it's like, well, that's how he would look when he's working. He's not going to sit there with the mask on, but he's not going to also take it all off. And so I, I just, it's like a Batman being real kind of moment. Like this is what he, this is what he wears when he's sitting in the chair and he's working. You know, yeah, because why? Why would he wear the mask while he's sitting yeah. in the chair? Make it make it harder to see the computers around yeah. him. You know, I mean, it's, yeah. it, it only makes sense that he would. You know, plus he's got a great head of hair. 
you know, mm-hmm. I, I gotta say, but that, well, the way Alex was trying to that, that uh, you know, but yes, it's it's all it it it, it works because well, I I've said this before. They you know I think this was going back before the Christopher Nolan movies. I always said that they could make a Batman movie based exactly how Alex Ross drew him, and people would buy it. You know, mm-hmm. he doesn't have to have. In fact, if I if I do have a criticism of of the latest Batman movie, is that it's again with the armor, mm-hmm. and what Alex Ross manages yeah. to do. And he's done this for every character he's ever drawn. And this it's again, it's that Christopher Reeve, Richard Donner thing is that he puts what look like real people because they're based on real people, they're models in these outfits and they don't look silly. Mm-hmm. They look cool. Mm-hmm. They look really interesting and it does, you know, and it, and, and it works. So I'm still holding out hope that there is going to someday be a Batman movie where he pretty much is just wearing you know, a very, you know, a thin layer. It could be Kevlar if it has to be, but I really do want to see a Batman, you know, that dresses like this at least yeah. once on the screen done, you know, done uh, in feature length style. Yeah. A cloth suit for once. Not, yeah, not, yeah. not you know, yeah. they're not, yeah, he's not in, in as you say, Kevlar. So then uh, Batman goes and he, he does more investigating. He goes to uh, a club, which is sort of run by gangsters. We get a kit, we get a cameo by Catwoman. Uh, which I like, but it's not her in her Catwoman garb. It's her in that that green, that emerald green dress that she wore, kind of almost in like her first appearance as Catwoman in it Batman number one. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and so we see her on the far right side of the, sc- uh, the I was about to say screen uh, panel, which I think is just a nice little gag that you know Catwoman's in there. Then we get another montage of Batman stopping all sorts of crime at Bayside. There's a shot of him in the in the shadows where he's actually. Well, Oh, Wait, hold on. Hold on. No, no. They, the club is the Iceberg Lounge. Mm-hmm. The the villain that the, the guy who he's questioning, the mob but that's the penguin. Is it? Yeah. Is that supposed to be yeah, a penguin? I mean, yeah, yeah. He says you know, he's a former gang boss reputedly gone legit. I, it's the mm-hmm. it's the iceberg lounge. And and when you when you go in and you go he goes in behind closed doors, he's knocked out all of the henchmen. Mm-hmm. And he's questioning him, and it's 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 the it's the penguin with the long nose. If you particularly if you see them in close up, see, I, I feel like the nose wasn't long enough for me to say that was penguin. It looks oh, like really? penguin, but yeah, not- no, I'm, I'm I, I would I would lay money on. It. Yeah, it never. I don't think he ever. I don't think it ever says the iceberg lounge, but it looks like there. Yeah, there are some icebergs on the floor. Yeah, I'm, I'm I would I would bet anything that that's the penguin. That makes total sense. It actually kind of, ironically enough, kind of looks like. Penguin, as portrayed in the Batman movie by Colin right, Farrell, which is another, which is another <laughs> thing that, that that led me to think that also. Which, by I, the way, before we even go any further, the, the cover of this, if you go to scene, if you go in the Batman, if you go to one hour seventeen minutes, whoa, where because I looked this up, where Batman is overlooking the drug lab through the skylight. I as soon as I saw it on screen, I said, "That's an Alex Ross shot." Hmm. And it is if you if you go to one seventeen if you've got HBO Max uh, and maybe if you want to do a frame grab for your for your listener notes and you put that the picture of him from inside the drug lab looking up and through the skylight and looking at this cover it is virtually the same exact image. Huh. I will have to look that up. I've not seen yeah. that movie since I saw it in the theater. I liked yeah. it, but I just haven't seen it again since. So I will have to check that out. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah, I said I always. Figured it was sort of penguinish, but by that close up, I just thought, well, the, 
I mean, I know it's Alex Ross, and he's got to keep it somewhat realistic. He can't have the big, you know, pointy penguin right. nose. Yeah, exactly. Um, but I, I don't know. I was always like, yeah, it's penguin-ish, but I did, I was never exactly sure it was penguins. So that's why I sort of didn't say that it was, but it make it makes gotcha. sense. Cause you say you could, you see the icebergs and stuff. We know that he is a former crime boss. So, uh, Batman is stopping all sorts of crimes and then he finally breaks up this, uh, drug den and he sees Marcus is there and he's got his back turned towards Marcus. And then he turns around and he sees Marcus pointing a gun at him. And we can get the sense from the body language and from the look on Marcus's face that Marcus doesn't really even know what he's doing. Yeah. You know, he's not really trying to hurt, but he could, could have shot him already, but he, but he doesn't. And Batman stands there and gets closer and closer. And there's this wonderful bit of angelic lighting coming down on Batman's head, you know, reflecting off of his cowl. And he decides, okay, I'm going to not try and intimidate this kid. I'm going to go with a different tack. I'm going to. Talk to him honestly. And this is that moment you talked about where you do get the impression he's no longer doing the Christian Bale thing. Yeah. And he's just talking like when Kevin Conroy was Bruce Wayne, you know, and he's the real voice. And that connects to Marcus to the point where Marcus drops the gun and hugs Batman. And that recalls that great story. I'm blanking on the name of it, but the one where Batman goes camping with the kids. Oh, yeah. They're all Uh, telling different stories. The Batman nobody knows. The Batman Uh, nobody knows. And the whole idea is. Yeah. yeah, and the whole idea is Batman does not scare the innocent. Kids are not right. scared by Batman because they have nothing to fear. And that's to me that recalls that a little bit here of like this kid he doesn't look as bat look at Batman as a figure to be scared by. It's a figure of of warmth and he hugs him and Batman puts his arm on his uh, puts his hand on his shoulder. And so, you know, it for some people of a certain bent, it's corny, but uh to me it works. Oh, I don't think it's corny. I, I mean, maybe they do, but I, I, I don't, I don't think it's corny. I think it's, I think it's very fitting. And, and especially for Batman, it's a great moment. I also, you know, you, your talk of the lighting, sort of the halo effect. What's interesting about that, that, it, it, and I didn't catch it right away when I, you know, I had to go back and reread this section again last night, but it's the reason all of that white is all over Batman is it's the drugs. He bursts in, the, the, the drugs go flying everywhere. Yeah, the plumes of smoke and they, everywhere. The plumes of smoke and the powder and everything, and it lands on him. So the way the light is on him, he actually isn't in all black. And the kid sees him almost like a white knight mm. and not just this, this, this dark visage. And I think that it, it, whether that was the intent or not, I think it helps to make Batman a little bit less threatening to the kid. Um, but nevertheless, I, you know, I think, it, like you say, everything is the words and the look on his face, the, um, you know, that, that, uh, five panel spread before, you know, when the kid hugs him in the end, it's the second panel that, that really grabs me where Batman is just, he's just going to lay it on the line with this kid and try to tell him how he feels. And it's a tremendous risk because the kid could still pull the trigger, mm-hmm. but it's, it's, it's a moment of bravery. And a moment of decency that, again, speaks volumes about the character that you don't always get to see. Yeah, it's a really, really, really great moment. So then we flash forward to a couple of days later, presumably, and uh, we see that Wayne has decided to invest in Bayside and he's going to reopen a factory. And we see he's got some plans and he's got a hard hat and there's a bunch of people milling around. He's putting them all to work. We see that, again, that Marcus is going to be part of the you know, Marcus is not getting away with it. He's going to get arrested and be put into the juvenile system. But we do get the sense, you know, Batman is going to be looking out for him and maybe even pulling some strings 
here and there to kind of make sure the kid lands in the best possible scenario. So then he returns as Bruce Wayne to go visit uh, Randall Winters at Randall's uh, pool party. And, uh, you know, he tells Randall, you know, no, I'm not investing in Randall is sort of like, well, you're a sap for caring about, you know, people you don't even know. And Bruce Wayne's like, well, basically let me worry about that. And then mm-hmm. as he, as he walks off, as he's, en- as he's exiting the frame, uh, we see Commissioner Gordon in his one and only appearance walking yeah. in with some cops. And we see that obviously he's responding to the anonymous tip that he got that Randall Winters yeah. has been paying off cops. So. I love that. And I love that, that Bruce Wayne, you, you get the sense that he made a point to be there so he could watch yeah. him get hauled off too. <laughs> yes. You know, he could have, like, it, it, it's like, it's like in the dark night where he's like, you, know, you could have called. You didn't have to yeah. fly all the way to Hong Kong to tell me this. Yeah. It's like Batman, Bruce Wayne did not have to show up at the pool party to get the point across, but he was, you get the sense that he knew what was coming and he just got to, you know, he was so disgusted by him that you can't help it that he had, he, you know, he was able to enjoy the moment as Bruce Wayne that <laughs> uh, this guy finally got his. <laughs> so good. Uh, and then we have another marvelous two page spread of Batman just standing on top of a like a like a gargoyle or an eagle or something on top of a building and he's just looking out over Gotham City it's just an absolutely fantastic shot of the cape fluttering i mean it's just the kind of thing where if you're a bajillionaire this is the kind of thing i'd like to buy this you know buy yeah, this off of Alec right. Ross this two page spread uh it's just so absolutely marvelous and then we get to this final page and this is what i talked about earlier this is one of my favorite batman moments i have ever read now, the story opens in the early morning at the grave of his dead parents. And, but here, uh, he's on a bridge. He's sitting on a bridge and we are, we, the top panel, we're far away and the middle panel, we get a little closer to, we see that he's actually sitting there all by himself. And he says, I helped Marcus deal with his pain. It will take him some time, but I know it will eventually, it will eventually leave him. Maybe someday. I can uh, leave mine behind as well. And then it cuts to this last panel with his head down. And he just says, but for now, I still wait. And it's an incredibly melancholy ending that this guy is just sitting on this bridge by himself. Sad. You know, he's still just sort of sad. And I just thought there was just something so wonderfully vulnerable about this Batman of like, this is a guy in constant pain and he knows deep down that he'll probably never ever really get rid of it but he's holding out hope well but for now i still wait but just the the acknowledgement there's something about the way it's written but for now i still wait it's i i absolutely love it and i remember the first time i read it you know i had it on the floor i was, it was like 30 years old but i was reading it on the floor like a little kid and i got to the moon i just like holy shit you know like wow what a great moment and these books you know, they're meant to appeal to comic book fans, but they're meant to appeal to a bigger audience. And, you know, people like to have happy endings for the superhero stories, but this is, this doesn't have, yeah, it's happy-ish, but it's, it, it has just, it has such a kind of nice, nice beat to it that, uh, I don't know. I just think it's really wonderful. It's, it, it crystallizes the whole theme throughout the story is that Batman is vulnerable. Yep. And because all of his decision making, comes from an emotional vulnerability throughout the story uh, in choosing not to prosecute Marcus and treating him just like any other felon in, in his, his, his moments of self doubt in his, 
you know, tacit acknowledgement that he can only do so much. You know, the, the understanding that you know, this is a, how does he phrase it? This is a war. I know I can never so, win. Yeah. Yeah. He says, yeah, I, yeah, a, a war. Yeah. It's, yeah. I know I'm fighting a war. I can never completely win. Completely. I like win, the, yeah. I, I like the qualifier completely win, but there are small victories that encourage me to keep trying. And that to me is the essence of what makes Batman special. And that's, and this, this book does such a great job of seeing through the, the guy who just wants to beat the snot out of people and showing him as a, as a human being. And, you know, not, not to belabor the point, but I'm going to anyway, is that you can't have that story without a Bruce Wayne element. Yeah. And I think that that's what gives it, you, you need that humanity. You need to be able to see that side of it to be able to appreciate it. And that, you know, again, to go back to, and to finish the point about watching the Batman is that it's the same thing. You know, the, you could, you can say that Robert Pattinson is emo Batman and you can, <laughs> all of that kind of, fine, whatever you want to say. But the, but the bottom line is that it is a story about someone who is broken, who is trying his best and figures out he needs to figure out another way to do this, or at least another way in addition to what he does, even though he is still likely to suffer through it himself because he's just that far gone. And, you know, to me, enduring in the face of your limitations again is the definition of heroism yeah i said it's a it's a great piece it's a great piece and uh they uh Deanie and ross i mean no surprise Deanie and ross had a great handle on batman but uh i just i love that it's a human scale story uh it features against you know ross takes full advantage of the treasury size we know he's a giant fan of the format and he delivers you know great small moments but he also delivers big screen moments big two-page splashes of batman flying through the city like we talked about at the beginning and then at the end and then these montages so i mean it's it really is just an absolutely beautiful batman story that gives you to me all the visceral thrills of a batman adventure and all the great visuals but it's a little more of a meal than some other stories where he's just you know foiling the riddler for the 90 right. millionth time. Not that I don't love those stories. I do, but no, there's, of course. there's a human element to it that just, to me, it fits this format of what him and uh, Ross and Deanie were trying to do. Yeah. And I, and I, and I do go back to the fact that this is to me at heart, this is a bronze age Batman story. Yeah. Even when it's got, it's, it's got modern trappings, but that's, that's what a lot of people don't forget about the bronze age is that the Batman in the bronze age was human. And he had feelings and he made mistakes and he would have stories that were little stories. They weren't always, I mean, when the Joker showed up, it was a big deal. It wasn't just Tuesday. Right. You know I mean? It right. was, you know, okay. you know, it's, it's gotten to the point where all of these people, why does Arkham Asylum even exist? Because they're all free and they're all doing whatever they're doing at all times. And all of the villains all seem to be always, you know, out there doing something because they've become franchises unto themselves that it actually to me dilutes the power of those characters and what works really well and what you want in your Batman stories or any superhero story for that matter is you want to have those big scenes and those big fights but you, you got to counterbalance it with something like this that gives a depth to the character that you don't always see but because you have that background it makes this that much more uh, impactful. Absolutely. And I, I, don't, I have no idea if anybody has ever done this. I'm going to bet that they haven't. But I would love it if I learned that, you know, in some Batman comic, 
one of the writers brought Marcus back as a grown and now he's like a district attorney or something, or he's he's a social worker, like he's turned his life around because of I Batman. Like I would love I that love so that much. Just I to throw it idea. in, you know, don't turn yeah. him into a regular. Don't I don't want him to be one of Batman's henchmen. Nothing right. like that. But just, oh, Batman helped me. When I was a kid and now I do this and just like a little nod to like, oh, that's the markets from War on Crime. You know, just I, something. I, like yeah, I, I love that idea. And I also, you know, you mentioned that the Batman nobody knows. It's also reminiscent of the Silent Night of the Batman, mm. which is, you know, which I consider to be the best, you know, comic book Christmas story ever. It's virtually mm. silent. Mm-hmm. And it again, it shows Batman's impact on the average person, even if he's not there. and and it's another one where you could take a moment to breathe and really appreciate everything about the character and the reason why those stories do work is because you've seen plenty of stories of the other you know the 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 the, the super villain stories helps make these stories work because they are such a good counterpoint yeah uh for many years back when these books were still available at the average bookstore back when we had bookstores uh, I would buy these Alex Ross, Paul Dini books, uh, for virtually anybody that I thought would might be into comics or superheroes. Cause I just thought I, I you know, first of all, they, they worked well as presents. Cause like at the higher price point, it felt a little more like a gift than just buying a comic book. But also it was like, okay, you don't need to have read. 4,000 Batman comics to understand what's going on. It's a one and done. It features a character, you know, doing things, you know. And so I, you know, every, and for, for the longest time, you could find these still in print yeah. at a bookstore. You just go to the graphic novel section and because they were treasuries, they were always on the top shelf. Right. You know, because they couldn't fit yeah. on any of the other shelves. So you'd always be able to see them. I'd be like, oh, there they are. And I would grab them. And so I, I must have, I personally have probably bought 10 copies of this book of this one over the years that I've given to people. And, you know, some people have taken to it, other people, not so much, but uh, I always felt that they were marvelous kind of gifts and doing the kind of thing they were meant to do, which was like maybe get somebody to read a Batman story that wouldn't normally read a Batman story. Um, You know, you've inspired me with that because my (laughs) wife, no, no, seriously, my wife and I this year, we've decided to do something uh, a little different, which is uh, once a month, you know, she's a huge movie buff, as am I, but she puts me to shame. Um, she, she, we, we've decided that once a month, she's going to pick a movie that she would like me to see that I've never seen, that she thinks it would be fun for us to watch together. And then I pick a comic book or graphic novel that she's never read that I think she would get something out of. Wow. And, and, and you have inspired me to make this one of the month, one of the monthly selections. <laughs> Because in thinking about it, I think that she would absolutely love this. So yeah. thank you for the idea. Uh, you'll have to report back. Let me know uh, I will. what she, what, what, what she like, but what can you just, before we wrap up, what, like what's a recent movie she's recommended? I'm kind of curious oh. as to what she's oh, sure. recommending. Well, well, there were two, because we're in February. We've done, she's right now. She's uh, overseas as we're recording this. So we did it early this month, but in January it was, um, uh, Bergman's Wild Strawberries, which I had never seen. Whoa. Uh, okay. Yeah, which is fabulous. Um, and le- this month it was um, uh, Herzog's uh, Aguirre uh, Wrath of God. Woo! <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, no, we're going all in, man. Jesus. I, yeah. 
Yeah. So the, what I gave for for her first month, it was I'll give you I'll give you three guesses if you can think what was the first story that I gave her. Oh, read. I oh my god, you'll I appreciate don't. it. Uh, is it an Alan story? No, 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 no. It's oh. the Batman Razal Ghoul Treasury Edition. Oh, okay, <laughs> okay, all right. That was the first one, and then the second one. Um, because she'd never read any of them. I said, you know, look, I, I'm not going to do this chronologically and it's not going to be all Batman, but it would be interesting if you actually read the original stories. So the latest was just a grouping of Detective 27, Batman number one, and the uh, C-37 Treasury because it's got all those, <laughs> the all villain issue. Mm-hmm, so she could mm-hmm. get a sense of like all of that foundational stuff so that she's seen a million times now through movies or whatever, but now she, you know, get, get a sense of where it came from. And it's really, it's been a, uh, it's been a great experience. So she doesn't know this yet, but next uh, March is going to be the, uh, uh, the justice league, um, uh, you know, the, the, uh, Dematis and, uh, um, uh, Giffen, Kevin McGuire. Uh, yeah, yeah, okay. the Kevin McGuire, the Blahaha, the first okay. seven issues of okay. Justice League. Yeah, I've, I've decided just to give her, throw her a curveball, a little bit of humor, a <laughs> little bit of, little bit of offbeat <laughs> stuff that's just good for a laugh. So I figured she'd... <laughs> You're throwing her JLI, and she's oh, throwing yeah. you Werner Herzog. Oh, I know, I know. This is this is our marriage, man. I mean, this is you know, this is great. But then I can't compete with her in movies anyway. I mean, she. She is, um, if you've ever heard of the movie, A Thousand and One Movies to Watch Before You Die. Oh, sure, 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 yeah. Okay, okay. She has taken that book and all of the other editions of it and compiled a master list of the 1,245 movies. Wow. She she has six to go. That's impressive. She has six okay. to go. Yeah. All right. In we got to get, we got to. For, for Valentine's Day, I got her an Iranian movie and a Chinese movie that were, you know, hard to find. And, uh, yeah, maybe I'll leave you guys with that. It's way off topic. But, you know, anyway, it's pretty cool. That's amazing. That's absolutely amazing. Yeah. Well, we got to get Mrs. Greenfield on fade out sometime. So, uh, <laughs> anyway, <laughs> by the way, we should say that Batman Treasury, which is, of course, the first treasury we ever covered on the show yes, with you. That yeah, you on the first episode. Yeah, we covered yeah. we covered the I think the first, the, two of the first three were Batman ones, mm-hmm. and right. and because uh, we did we did C thirty seven Batman number one and the yep. and the Russell Gold one, right? That's right. So yeah, I, I uh, the, the fact that the first um, what I gave her all you know so far all I've given her pretty much are Treasury editions <laughs> to read, and and now I'll. Uh, now we'll get to a regular size comics. Right, fair enough. So, well, Dan, thank you as always. It's always a blast to podcast with you, regardless of what the topic is, whether it's Mash or or Batman or anything like that. Uh, and uh, it's 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 always fun. So, thank you so much for doing this. Absolutely, Rob. Thanks for having me. I always have a good time. Appreciate it. Why don't you tell people where they can find you around on the internet? Not that they don't already know, but tell people anyway. Thirteenth Dimension, uh, the website uh, going on ten years actually. Now. Wow. But uh, but I'm not celebrating it until we get to 13 years. So you know, um, <laughs> I like that. I mean, I, I mean, I can't break. I can't. You know, I, I can't break format now. I like the commitment um, to the bit. Yeah, exactly. Right. Exactly. All in. 
Um, but yeah, it's, it's, you know, we, we've got, uh, you know, the same stuff we've always done, you know, mostly focusing on retro comics, silver age and bronze age primarily and related media, uh, Rob, your own bad self, uh, uh, still, uh, thankfully occasionally, uh, contributes his real retro cinema columns, mm-hmm. which I uh, also will rerun on occasion because this mm-hmm. past weekend was, uh, as we're recording, this was the swamp thing movie. Yes! So, I, yes! so I trotted out your, your, your Dick Durock uh, appreciation piece. And, uh, you know, there's, so you could always find, and it's got its own section on the site too. So if you want to see some of the stories that Rob has written, just go over to real retro cinema off to the right at the, uh, near the search window, click on it and you'll find all of Rob's great columns. And there's a lot of them there. So, you know, could kind of bring it back to movies again, uh, between the time people are hearing this and when they hear the next episode, the, uh, there's a, a local, uh, uh, monster con that comes to my area it's literally down the street from where we live and yeah. it's monster mania and yeah. the big get for me the big guest adrian barbeau there you Ad- go. adrian barbeau <laughs> is on a short list of people that i am like i am not missing that i will go to the show just to get her autograph i don't care <laughs> and i get what am i getting her to sign my vhs copy of swamp thing with Perfect. that painting on the cover. Perfect. So it reminds, but, it reminds me. Yeah. It reminds me of your quest to meet, uh, uh, Karen Allen. Exactly. Karen Allen was on that list. I met Karen yeah. Allen and I have, I told him, I told my wife Kelly, I said, Adrian Barbeau is on that list. And then bang, she's going to be at monster mania. So I am going to make a beeline <laughs> for, for her table. I cannot wait to meet Adrian Barbeau, but yes, I'm getting her to sign my swamp thing VHS. That's how. That's well, let how. me, let me ask you one thing before we go. Have you, have you pre-ordered your Marion Ravenwood uh, action figure yet that that's coming out? I'm not even familiar with that. So no, I have Ooh, not. Yeah. Check it out. After this, go on. Hasbro is doing a line of Indiana Jones figures including Marion Ravenwood. Okay. Yeah, I, I probably got to get that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I probably got to get that. So, all right. Well, I, I'm busy. I gotta, I gotta wrap this up so I can uh, go, go do feedback later so I can order that figure. So, uh, yes, everybody, I love writing the real retro cinema call for 13 dimension. So please check them out. There will be a, uh, again, at the time of listening, there'll be another one coming soonish uh, as soon as I get it to get done writing it. Uh, but uh, again, Dan, thank you so much for doing this. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Stay tuned, please. I'm going to run some podcast promos. And when I come back, I'm going to do some listener feedback. Hey, Sean, do you want to go over the checklist to make sure we are ready for the next phase of the Batman family reunion? Sure thing, Paul. Robin and Batgirl in team-up action? Check. Fried chicken? Check. Manbat fighting a were jaguar? Check. Deviled eggs? Check. Potato salad? Check. Without the raisins? Of course. The Huntress fighting Catwoman and Poison Ivy? Check. Lemonade? Check. Alfred and Commissioner Gordon keeping a secret from Bruce Wayne? Check and check. Reprints or all new stories? New stories and reprints until issue 10, and then nothing but brand new stories from there on out. Giant size issues? A mere giant size until issue 16, and then dollar comics from issues 17 to 20 through the end of the run in Detective. Guest list? Absolutely. We are having a number of bat relatives visit the reunion, so listen in for your favorite bat cousin. All right, great. Then we're all ready for the Batman Family Reunion Podcast, where we talk about Batman Family, the great comic book from the 70s and 80s. We'll discuss not only the stories, but also the text pages and ads, and we'll also find out what the Batman Family was doing on the newsstands that month. And since this is a reunion, we're inviting all of you, the bat kinfolk, to listen in and to be part of the show. Look for the Batman Family Reunion Podcast on the Fire and Water Podcast Network. 
At To The Bat Poles Podcast, we look at the many sides of our favorite hero, Batman. For example, Encyclopedia Batman. It's the basic formula for escaping from the Siamese human knot. I just recalled it. Civic Responsibility Batman. Only a criminal would disguise himself as a licensed bonded guard, yet callously park in front of a fire hydrant. Impish Humor Batman. Look at him, Robin. A crooked bird's going crazy. And more. See if you can identify other sides of the Cape Crusader, and then join us at To The Bat Poles Podcast, available wherever podcasts are found or at tothebatpoles.libsyn.com. Batman has many sides, but can we trust him to save the day? You can be sure if it's Batman. And it's time for listener feedback, and these are the comments we got on episode Famous First Edition Flash Comics number one with my guest Gabriel Hardman. First up is Trey Payne, who says, Great episode as usual, Rob. Huge fan of these Famous First Editions. Always wondered why we never got a Green Lantern comics in the line as it made the cut along with all the others on a Sears betting set in 1975. Remember that? Also, why Marvel never followed suit with their own facsimile Famous Firsts. Yeah, it, it is a little strange that Green Lantern didn't quite make the cut. He was certainly one of their big characters in the 70s. Although that, the you know, the Hal Jordan series was, I think, a little bit on uh, shaky footing right around that time. So maybe Green Lantern wasn't considered at the same level of an icon as Flash, uh, maybe. Regarding Marvel, yeah, that is a darn shame that Marvel never did their own version of that. That would have been amazing to have treasury-sized Editions of Fantastic Four number one and Journey to Mystery 83, Hulk one, Spider-Man one. That would have been so cool. It's a, it's a, it's a really real shame. They, they never thought to do that or never considered it. Uh, anyway, Chris Franklin from our network, of course, says great discussion. I knew Harry Lambert only drew the flash for a few issues, but checking out Mike's amazing world, he shifted over to the King strip and then stayed on it through number 34. In Flash Comics 43, he inked the Flash story, apparently his last credit on his co-creation. Oddly enough, he drew a chapter in the JSA story, also comics number 34, but that featured the Atom, not the Flash, although Leah Elias drew that, so it's gorgeous. I definitely feel Sheldon Moldoff's Golden Age work is some of the best All-American and or DC had in their stable in the 40s. It's kind of a shame most people know him for being the very simplified style he used on the Batman strip, ghosting for Bob Kane for nearly 20 years. There's a charm to that, of course, but Moldoff was a much better artist than what most folks thought him capable of. Of course, no one knew uh, that was him back then, so I guess at the time, no big shakes. As much as I like Hawkman, that very early hat version, as Gabriel pointed out, is pretty off-putting. I much prefer the later redesigns by Moldoff and Joe Kubert. Hey, maybe Jay Carter and the Whip should have formed the in-comic super team, the all-hat squadron. They could have kept Johnny out. It's always a good idea. Speaking of the web, he showed up in Roy Thomas's All-Star Squadron, so at some point DC must have considered his exploits as taking place in contemporary times. But DC was pretty fast and loose with that back in the golden and solar early Silver Ages. Powell Smith's strip was set in modern times in Detective Comics, but one issue after moving to Western, it was suddenly set in the late 1800s with no explanation. Harold Wallen says, thanks for the podcast. This stirred up some memories, including the day I got this famous first edition. I was about nine years old. My Uncle Phil had passed away. It was the first funeral I had ever attended, and my aunt was overcome with emotions in a way that I've only seen in fiction. Think Leland Palmer at his daughter's funeral. Afterwards, everyone went to their Brooklyn apartment to sit Shiva. My dad took me downstairs to the corner luncheonette to get something to distract me, and this is how that is how I got the issue. 
This was also one of the first times I read an origin story, and I remember nerding out and boring my disinterested friends that I knew the Flash's origin and secret identity. I had no idea about Earth-1 and Earth-2 at this point, and I really didn't know much about the Flash yet. The other origin story I remember him from about this time was when I read famous first edition of Batman number 1. Believe it or not, most kids in the 60s and early 70s had no idea about Thomas and Martha Wayne. One last memory. 30 years later, after my grandfather's funeral, the rabbi who did the service came up to me and said that he had heard from my family that I was a comic book fan. He told me that his grandfather had created The Flash. I said, wait, your grandfather was Gardner Fox? Oops, his grandfather was Harry Lampert. No offense taken. He was a very nice man and proud of his grandfather. Wow, Harold, that is two amazing stories. Thank you so much for for sharing them. Uh, I remember something similar many years ago. Uh, a friend of mine's uh, mother had passed away relatively young and I had, I had known her when I was a kid growing up. And so we went to the funeral and my friend had two small uh, children and so small that, you know, they kind of didn't really fully understand where, what, what they were at. You know, they under, I think they understood that their grandmother had, had died, but they didn't know what a funeral was. And of course, being so small, they really didn't know how to behave exactly. They didn't understand the solemnity of it. And I, uh, they loved Archie comics. And on the way to the funeral and my suit and everything, I remember I popped into a supermarket and, uh, you know, one of the reasons why I go on and on about why comic books should be where people go, uh, there were Archie digests at the checkout counter and I spent, you know, $10 and got like six RG digests, which represented like a thousand pages of Archie content. And I brought them and I gave them to the kids and my friend was very, Thankful for that because they both just grabbed the Archie Digest, sat in the chair, didn't make a peep while my friend went through all the, uh, you know, grim processes of, of, of his mother's funeral. So, uh, it's kind of similar to made me think of that as soon as I, I read that story. And again, this is why comic books need to be everywhere. Uh, Gene Papa says, Another great episode. And like you, Rob, I love the original house ads that were included in these treasuries. They really helped draw you into the era. Someone once told me years ago that at least some of the art that appeared in these Golden Age treasuries wasn't original, but that was actually traced by other artists in the 1970s. The reason given was that DC didn't have suitable copies of the original comics, so they had to recreate parts of it. I'm not sure if that's true or not, but I do recall there being a fan kerfuffle when it was alleged that Marvel was redrawing, in some cases altering, art from the 1960s in their Masterworks collections in the 90s. And by the way, Flash Comics had an unintended consequence for a comic book publisher other than DC. Fawcett was all set to debut their new character, Captain Marvel, in the first issue of their own Flash comics, only to discover that DC All-American had narrowly beaten them to the title's name. So Fawcett's book was quickly rebranded as Wiz Comics, although there was an Ashcan version printed with the initial Flash title. Yeah, Gene, I knew that story. I should have included it. I didn't have it in my notes, but I, I remembered from years of reading uh, Overstreet Price Guides about that, so I should have thrown it in. So thank you for uh, putting it in the feedback. Ido Boznar says, thoroughly enjoyed the discussion, gentlemen. Gabriel was a really great guest. I found his insights quite interesting. In fact, I don't know how many of these famous first editions you have left to cover, but I wouldn't mind a return appearance to discuss them, even though I know his top priority now is to get invited to participate in the Super Friends podcast because he's chomping at the bit to win one of those governed Robbies. Otherwise, since Gabriel was wondering about any more recent use of Johnny Thunder, it's worth pointing out that the Thunderbolt appeared in the Stargirl TV series. Amazing. And comics cost a quarter in 1975. Thank you, Ado. Uh, Bucky749 says, great episode. Once again, another great guest. Jay, the Golden Age Flash is one of my favorite characters of the Golden Age, though my favorite is Sandman classic version. It should be noted when the Flash of Earth 2 did show up in the show, I was jumping up and down to see him. And yes, that hat. 
Also, quick question. Have you guys ever viewed any Western or pirate comics? I'm going to assume, Bucky, that that question is meant for the entire network, not just Treasury comics. Uh, pirate. So going with that, pirate comics, I don't think so. I know over in Ryan's Secret Origin show, they did um, the Black Pirate had a um, Secret Origin devoted to him. And they did an episode on that, I believe. So I don't know if the, you, you count that exactly. That's probably the closest. In terms of Western comics, uh, Shag and I, the Redeemable Shag and I, did an episode of Who's That? Talking about the Western character, Johnny Thunder, not the lame version in Flash comics, but the cool Western character, which we loved. So if you want to hear about some Western comics, go check that episode of uh, Who's That? Uh, Alexander M. Osiah says, it's fascinating to see the early stories of some of these now iconic characters. There's a real argument for the evolution of some of these characters to be more relevant to modern times, but without sacrificing what makes them so unique and interesting. Flash was a surprise with his initial frivolous use of his superpowers, since I'm so used to seeing him as the elder statesman superhero of the JSA. Hawkman really had that strange sense of a revenge story appropriate for Horus the Hawk God, not Anubis, along with the thin veneer of Egyptian mythology that became such a core aspect to the character. Johnny Thunder seemed to be curious, naive and well-meaning, but not quite the sad interpretation we see him now. I'm wondering if there's a way to refine him so he's not such a loser. Good luck with that, uh, Alexander. Uh, Martin Gray says, terrific show. Mr. Hardman is a fun guest. I never had this treasure edition. DC treasures being like hen's teeth in the UK, but I would have loved it. The Flash being one of my favorite DC books in the 70s. It was always great seeing Jay and Joan, so getting their first appearance would have been amazing. It always struck me as odd that when Jay's stories proved to hit, they didn't just convert the book to all Flash rather than coming out with an all Flash quarterly. They could have moved Hawkman and Pals over to a new title. Uh, Matsuroi says, uh, Cliff Cornwall, dot, 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 who's that? Oh, wait, he doesn't qualify for that podcast because he didn't even make the cut of who's who. Poor guy. There were other obscure characters that didn't even appear in 18 comics that were included. I really love these Golden Age books. They presented sheer adventure and an incredibly fast pace. Don't worry about science and facts. Just hurry up and save the day. The rather crude art even helps propel the story along. There's just enough to hear to show you the basics basics of what's going on and move you to the next panel. These were fun comics. Thanks for another great episode. Always enjoy listening. Thank you, Matt. Brian Chufo says, Ralph Farnham isn't a scary name. My grandmother's maiden name was Farnham, and she could scare the bejeebers out of me. Uh, <laughs> and then finally, Brett Young says, great show, Rob. Gabriel Hardman was a terrific guest. I had never read Jay Garrick's first appearance before, so the story was new to me. I've always loved the classic Flash Flash's look. The Mercury helmet and the lightning bolt shirt is so cool. And nothing says hero more than standing over your villain's broken body at the bottom of a cliff, watching them as they die in agony, just so you can watch the light leave their eyes. Joan is fascinating in this story. I never knew she was such a toxic sports fan. Joan is not going to lose her over-under bet on Midwestern U because Jay's bringing weak shit on the gridiron. Forget your test tubes, nerd, and focus on the halfback option. She clearly uh, missed her calling as a loud ESPN analysis. Later, Joan is troubled by her dad's kidnapping, but not enough to miss out on her afternoon brandy. Then she celebrates her father's return and the murder of all four villains with a tray full of brandy. I'm starting to realize why these two dark individuals were so into each other. The other stories were a mixed bag. I always liked the original Hawkman mask. He started with the mask over his eyes, and it looked good. I guess he started pushing the mask up and wearing it as a hat in the second half of the story because it's hard to fly when you have a bird face covering your eyes. Hawkman has always been one of those characters which looks so cool, but nobody knows what to do with him. Giving him Indiana Jones-type adventures is a nice idea, but it's hard when he can fly over most traps and busted bridges. Maybe team in with a Ralph Farnham space pirate. Okay, gotta go jump some ducks. Uh, yeah... <laughs> I've always loved Hawkman, uh, especially the Earth One version, Hawkman and Hawk Girl. I, I've never been able to fully understand why they were 
the subject of such constant reinvention to me it's like uh, married space cops that just seems it seems like such a great premise i don't know why dc it's a trouble with them but i can i've always loved uh, hawkman in any iteration thanks so much for the comments everybody really do appreciate it. Uh, gabriel of course always a great guest as is always dan greenfield thanks to him for coming back on treasure cast and talking about batman war on crime uh, i promise before this show wraps up i will get to all of the paul dini alex ross uh, treasuries because i just love them so very much so again thanks all for the comments of course you can find all the back episodes of the show on our website findwaterpodcast.com you can subscribe to the show on any podcatcher of your choice we're always talking treasury comics over at twitter at treasury comics and then finally if you want to support Firewater Podcast Network, just go to patreon.com slash fwpodcast, and there you can unlock various rewards, one of which is to be named checked on the show of your choice. So big thanks to Jeff Pollier, Brett Young, and Mark Balbus for their support of TreasureCast. I really appreciate it. So that's going to do it. We will see you next month. But until then, go big or go home.